Our scripture lesson this morning also deals with kings and those in authority. I will be reading from 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning with verse 11 and extending to the end of the chapter. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims to abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may by your good works which they observe glorify God in the day of visitation. Therefore, Submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and the, for the praise of those who do good. For this is the will of God that by doing good, you may put to silence the ignorance of foolish men as free yet not using liberty as a cloak for vice, but as bondservants of God. Honor all people, love the brotherhood, fear God, honor the king. Servants, be submissive to your masters with all fear, not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. For this is commendable, if because of conscience toward God one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. For what credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? But when you do good and suffer, if you take it patiently, this is commendable before God. For to this you were called because Christ also suffered for us, leaving us an example that you should follow in his steps, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth, who, when he was reviled, did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but committed himself to him who judges righteously, who himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree, that we, having died to sins, might live for righteousness, by whose stripes you were healed. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. With the exception of Christmas and Easter, where I will tend to preach topically on the themes of the season, I really studiously kind of avoid doing that, especially for, uh, you know, human-created holidays. But uh, instead, I preach through books of the Bible. Uh, Part of that is to keep me from preaching my own hobby horses. I have to preach what God has put before me. But ironically, it's the Lord's Day right before the 4th of July, and I'm up to verse 13 through 18 of 2 Peter 2, which is all about how Christians relate to the church, how Christians relate to the state, uh, what we are to think about kings. So actually, uh, I'm up to preaching on government. And so ironically, that's where we're at. Um, It's a timely topic in the Christian world where Christians talk to each other. 
Uh, generally, that's what everybody's talking about. In fact, you almost get to the point where you think that's all we ever talk about because that's what people are talking about. And there are all sorts of things being put forward to answer the question of how does the church relate to the state? How does the Christian relate to the secular government? Boy, are there all kinds of answers to that that are being put forward. There is the pietist option, which basically says the kingdom of Christ is not of this world. Uh, we really shouldn't think about government stuff, politics stuff. It's all going to burn. Um, God calls us to preach the gospel. That's how your salt, light, and leaven it is exclusively the preaching of the gospel. That's what we ought to do, and we shouldn't think about politics in any way. There is the Benedict option, which is not named for Benedict Arnold, which uh, that's kind of a, a problem with the, the name. It's named for a ancient Christian who established effectively a society next to a society. He created an order specifically of monks that would live according to the Benedict rule. And it was designed to have a Christian society that those not in Christian society could see, but Christians would pull away from society and live in a Christian society, kind of as a testimony to the pagan society. It could have been called the Patrick option, because that's how Patrick of Ireland actually evangelized Ireland. He would establish a small Christian colony just outside of a Irish town. Uh, they'd move right across the street and they'd set up a town effectively. And the pagans would watch the Christians live and the Christians were very different because they lived according to the scriptures. And slowly the pagans would say, why don't Christians beat their wives? That, that's just not the way things are supposed to be. You're supposed to beat your wives. Why aren't you beating your wives? Um, Christians don't stay inebriated all the time. What's the problem with them? Why aren't they drunk? Um, and people would come across the street and ask, why are you like this? And Christians would say, why don't you stay for a while? And why don't you see how we're doing stuff? And slowly, by God's grace, people would come to Christ because they would say, okay, wow, this is much better than the society we're in. And uh, eventually the whole town would come across the street and you'd have an evangelized town. Now, Patrick didn't just believe in evangelism by example. He believed in preaching the gospel, but it was a lot by example. And that's the Benedict option. And there are people who are pushing that. Technically speaking, there is the liberal option. They call themselves Christians. They're not, but they call themselves that. The liberal option is effectively, basically, let's paint a few religious words on what is effectively liberal politics, and let's not really think about spiritual things. Let's try to make the world a much better place through politics and occasionally use the word God. Uh, there's people out there really pushing that, and I say it's the liberal option, but you know I've known a conservative or two who's kind of that way. 
let's push conservative ideas, but let's occasionally say God, and that'll make people happy. There is the, uh, currently, there is a popular outworking of theonomy called Christian nationalism, which says we're called to be salt, light, and leaven. God wants us to integrate into the kingdoms of the earth, and we are change agents, and the, the best way to do that is do it actively. God has given us uh, some societies where we can actually be involved in the government. We can we run for office. We can get laws passed. We can be politically active. We've watched the liberals do it for 50 years, and they've been very successful at tearing society down. Uh, why don't we do it? Why aren't we involved in government and we run for office and we steer the ship, there's biblical precedent for it. Daniel is half about a guy who ends up in Babylonian government and how he is faithful to God in Babylonian government. So uh, why don't we do that? Why don't we, why don't we get involved and really try to be salt, light, and leaven in a political way? All these options, all these Voices talking about how we are to relate to what Scripture would call the king, what Scripture would call Caesar. Uh, it's it's non-Christian government. How do we relate to that? Well, verse 13 through 18 is all about that, and that is the focus of my sermon but it is important to notice the context of verse 13 through 18. And the context is the first two verses I read, which is verse 11 and 12. Beloved, I beg you as sojourners and pilgrims, abstain from fleshly lusts which war against the soul, having your conduct honorable among the Gentiles, that when they speak against you as evildoers, they may, by your good works, which they observe, glorify God in the day of visitation. There are a couple of things we need to note in these verses before we move on to the next. The first one is, the scripture clearly says, you and I are strangers and pilgrims. I focused on that last Week. I'm not going to belabor it, but Peter does not say your citizenship of Cappadocia, Bithynia, Asia Minor, the Roman Empire, that is your primary citizenship. You could think of yourself in those terms. That is your identity. He has been talking since the very first verse of this epistle that we are the diaspora. We are a kingdom that is spread into the kingdoms of men. We may be Americans, we may be uh, French, whatever, but that is not our primary citizenship. Our primary citizenship is that we are of the kingdom of God. We are under the divine king. And there is a very real sense, no matter how you interpret how to be salt, light, and leaven, that this is not your home. You're just a passing through. 
the angels are beckoning you from heaven's open door, and you really can't be at home in this world anymore. It, it's not your home. You are strangers and pilgrims. That's God's words. That's a truth. You are, quote, among the Gentiles. The term Gentile means people who are out of God's covenant. It's not an insult, but it's not a good term. If you are a Gentile, God is not in any particular saving covenant with you. And Peter says you live among the Gentiles, right? I mean, this is his language. So around us are people who are unsaved people. If you are not in a covenant with God through Christ, you're not saved. And Peter says we're surrounded by those people. You are performing your actions among them, and they are watching what you're doing. Uh, yesterday, we were talking about the idea that, you know, kind of in the Midwest, uh, there's kind of a libertarian live and let live, nobody's watching. Well, generally, there's usually people watching. Um, the pagans view what we're doing. They have a particular interest in people, as all people do. I mean, what happens when people get together at the water fountain or at the cafe? Well, people talk about people. And Peter says the Gentiles are watching our actions, which we are working among them, and they, they're going to see that. They're going to have an opinion about that. And Peter says, what you do among them must be honorable. A very interesting word. It suggests that there are conniving, self-centered, uh, craven ways of living. And we who are of the kingdom of God and are strangers and aliens must forego those because honorability is the opposite of that. So the Gentiles have to watch us live honorably. And when they do, two things will take place. The first one is this will cause them to talk about you as an evildoer. And again, look at verse 11 and 12. And the, the proverb, not biblical proverb, but the proverb that says no good deed goes unpunished, well, Peter basically said that. You are expected to live honorable among the Gentiles. They will watch you do that, and the Gentiles will say, who do those people think they are? What's wrong with them? But it doesn't hold up. It doesn't hold up when they say it. It kind of falls flat. It doesn't hold up internally. When they speak that, they say, look at those people. I hate them. Look at what they're doing. They're doing all this good stuff. It creates this internal, uh, you know, the world is cracking. They, they, they can't really honestly say, yeah, these people are bad because they're watching good things happen because they're living honorably. And the end result is that God is going to use this to 
bring at least some of them to a point where when Christ returns as king, these people who have maligned us and said, who do they think they are? You know, I hate them, those, those darn Christians. They will end up being Christians on the day of visitation. They will have been changed by the grace of God. They will be citizens of heaven. And it will take place because we have lived honorably among them. I think it was midweek. I was just kind of flipping through Twitter, and there was a woman who was talking about the fact that uh, the woman who brought her to faith, her, her evangelist, was dying of cancer, and she really hadn't got a chance to say, thank you for being God's vessel to minister to me. Thank you that God used you to bring me to eternal life. I got to go talk to her before she dies because she's getting real sick. And I really need to go do this because when she did share the gospel with me, I got really mad at her. I didn't like her and I fired her. I was her boss and I fired her. I, I made her unemployed. But her words were what God used to bring me to faith. And now I'm going to say thank you. So that's what Peter's talking about. That's the dynamic that uh, he wants us to understand. You will be God's messengers. You will be his tool to bring eternal life through this living honorably, but it will cause them to hate you and there'll be, there'll be consequences, but this is how God's going to do it. And you have to live honorably among them. That serves as the context of the next verses, which you can see in how the New King James begins the next verses. It says, therefore. Now, in, in the King James Version and in most modern English versions, it doesn't use the term therefore. And so I went to the original to make sure it's there, and it is. The, the Greek term, therefore, is present. The word clearly says, since this is true, now this next coming is true. I'm not really sure why you don't find it in the King James Version, because um, my guess is, is that the King James Version thought the connection between verse 11 and 12 with what comes next is just so obvious that you don't even need the therefore. It, it's, it flows out. And so many modern translations, the shadow of the King James kind of falls on them, and they follow its word structure many places. Uh, that, that's all I can really figure is why it's only a minority that has the word therefore, because it's in the Greek. Uh, but Peter says, you have to live honorably before the Gentiles. You have to conduct life before them. Therefore... Everything that follows is part of living honorably. Uh, living honorably is not just a principle. It's got teeth. There are things that you have to do to say you're living honorably. And the first thing that Peter says is, therefore, submit yourself, quote, to every ordinance of man. That's his language. Um, the NASB puts it sort of like 
every human law. And that's what's being talked about. You have to live among the Gentiles. You have to live honorably. Therefore, be submissive to every human ordinance. Now, as a libertarian-minded person, I don't like hearing that. And as a Christian, I don't really necessarily like hearing it either, even though it's the Bible. Uh, what I would like Peter to have said is, therefore, submit yourself to every ordinance of God, which language is many places in Scripture. And it's not here. Peter says, therefore, be submissive to every ordinance of man. Linguistically, Peter is talking about human law. He is writing to citizens of the Roman Empire, which is in no way Christian. It is highly unjust. And Peter says to live honorably among the Gentiles, have an attitude of submission to every human law. Caesar makes laws. The governor of the province upholds laws. And if you are going to live honorably among the Gentiles, you must have submission to this legal system that you're in. Now, it's important to note why, though. Because if we're looking at Peter's language and taking it seriously, Peter adds a very important phrase, and that is, for the Lord's sake. Peter doesn't say, obey them for their sake. In fact, we're going to notice Peter doesn't say a number of things. Peter says the reason you should live submissively to them is because you have a Lord, and that is a political statement. You realize every time you say Jesus Christ is Lord, or Jesus Christ is king of kings or lord of lords, you are making a political statement. Who are the lords? Who are the kings? Well, they're the kings. They're the people who run Germany. They're the people who run Russia. They're the people who sit in Washington, D.C. So if you say Jesus Christ is the king of kings or the lord of lords, you're making an absolute political statement. And Peter here says, be submissive to them, but you be submissive for the Lord's sake. You are not really exactly considering them. You are considering the fact that you have a Lord, you have a country. You are strangers and aliens in this world, but you are not without citizenship. You are of the citizenship of Jesus Christ. He is your Lord. And for your Lord's sake, you be submissive to them. Um, who? Well, Peter is rather specific. Uh, the king, who is supreme. Um, and then there are his governors. Uh, that's who you are to be submissive to. But it's not practical atheism. There is a 
there is a doctrine that is very popular among evangelicals, and they don't know where it came from. It came from Lutheranism, and what it is, is it's called, quote, radical two-kingdom theology. Have you, you heard this? Okay. I've talked with a number of Lutherans. Uh, I've spent a lot of time with Lutherans. One of my best friends is a Lutheran. We've talked this out, and basically what this doctrine means is that the kingdom of Christ is something totally heavenly. It has no earthly connection. Um, everything political on earth is the kingdom of this world, and Jesus Christ's kingdom is not of this world in any way. When Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this world, otherwise my, my servants would fight to deliver me, uh, he means there is no connection to the earth at all. Uh, you are citizens of heaven, but when you are on earth, you are practically not a citizen of heaven. You are practically a citizen of the society you are in, and you are expected to live in that society without being different. And what really strikes me, what really uh, amazes me, is my Lutheran friends even say church government is the kingdom of this world. So when bishops meet, when pastors are in convocation, that's still the kingdom of the world, and we're not under Christ. Christ's kingdom is something totally spiritual. It doesn't really happen on earth. And the end result of this doctrine is that we are practically atheists. We don't claim atheism, but we live it. Jesus Christ is Lord of Lords and King of Kings in a very abstract way that doesn't touch the earth in any way. And it is perfectly okay to live separate from the kingdom down here on earth because we're in the kingdoms of men. That's what God expects. We're going to get to heaven. We're going to be in the kingdom of heaven. And when we get there, well, we're going to live holy lives. But down here, it doesn't work that way. There's a radical difference. I, I don't know about you, and this, this whole sermon is not designed to attack radical two-kingdom theology, but I'm actually positive there is nothing in Scripture that teaches me to live like an atheist, right? I mean, would, would you say that's not the flow of Scripture? Well, it's not. And Peter says, you are doing this for the Lord's sake. In fact, you're doing it as free men. You saw that in the passage, right? Living as free, says Peter, but not using your freedom as a cloak for evil desires, living your freedom for the sake of glorifying God. When Peter says we are free men in this context, he is saying you have a Lord, your citizenship is under Christ, and in a very real sense, you're not a part of what's around you. And from a legal perspective, uh, you've got a higher Lord than the Lord of the country. In fact, notice Peter's language. He says you are to honor all men, and he says you are to honor the king. He says you are to love the brethren. But what does he say about what you are to do with God? Does he say, now honor all men, 
And honor goes across the board. You honor every sentient being you know. Honor, honor, honor. Or is there another term that Peter uses for God? Looking at your text. Honor the king, honor all men. But what are you to do with God? You are to fear God. Fear is higher than honor. Fear is a royal term. It is used for the highest authority. And Peter says, you're a free man living in this pagan world. You fear God. He is, in fact, your highest ruler. And in using this language, he is using language that is not interpreted in any way realistically, except in a hierarchical way. The ruler of the country is an authority. You are to honor him. But God is higher. I find it very, very strange that the concept of hierarchy or patriarchy, which is the former hierarchy that the Bible commends, is attacked in the world viciously, usually by people who are radically, radically authoritarian. You Christians teach about patriarchy and hierarchy. You talk about there being levels of fatherhood and one father is higher than another and ultimately God is the highest. Who do you think you are? People are equal. By the way, you should obey the state without question. By the way, every whim of culture that happens you should bow down and worship it because, quite frankly, that's the way of a culture, and what's wrong with you? So I just find that deeply ironic. The Bible does teach a authority of authorities. Above the king is God. And the way a hierarchy works out, rather than being dangerous and oppressive, a hierarchy is designed to actually be good and protective. When your authority says, now I'm your authority, and I want you to do something against the will of God, how are you to respond? According to a great amount of the church, you are to respond with, hey, look, you know, this is radical two-kingdom theology. You know, I'm, I'm your citizen on earth, so I'm going to do it because that's what we do. In the, the Israel that our Lord walked in, one of the highest governing authorities, now it was religious, but it was governing as well, was the Sanhedrin. And in the book of Acts, we have this example of how the apostles related to governing authorities. If you go to Acts chapter 23, verse 1 through 5, you read this. Then Paul, looking earnestly at the council, said, Men and brethren, I have lived in all good conscience before God until this day. And the high priest Ananias, now again, these are religious people, religious offices, but they are also political offices. They hold political clout. 
And the high priest Ananias commanded those who stood by him to strike him on the mouth. Then Paul said to him, God will strike you, you whitewashed wall, for you sit to judge me according to the law, and you command me to be struck contrary to the law. And then we read, and those who stood by said, do you revile God's high priest? Then Paul said, I did not know, brethren, that he was the high priest, for it is written, you shall not speak evil of a ruler of your people. So here you have an unjust ruler who does an unjust thing, and the apostle Paul submits to him. And so he says, you know, look, I shouldn't have said that about the high priest. I was out of order. There's an attitude of submission. And if that was the only passage we had from Acts, we would say, okay, the radical two kingdom people look like they got it going on. You know, this was an unjust thing. Paul took it. Uh, submit to bad rulers. But that's not the only thing that you read in Acts. In Acts chapter 4, verse 13 through 20, we read, Now when they saw the boldness of Peter and John and perceived that they were uneducated and untrained men, they marveled, and they realized that they had been with Jesus. And seeing the man who had been healed standing with them, they could not say anything against it. But when they had commanded them to go aside out of the council, they conferred among themselves, saying, What shall we do to these men? For indeed, that a notable miracle has been done through them is evident to all who dwell in Jerusalem, and we cannot deny it. But so that it spreads no further among the people, let us severely threaten them that from now on they speak to no man in this name. So if you're going with radical two-kingdom theology, the apostles are told to not tell anybody about Jesus, and they're going to obey that because, you know, radical two-kingdom theology and so now the gospel ends and salvation disappears. But that's not what happens. So they called them and commanded them not to speak at all nor teach in the name of Jesus. But Peter and John answered and said to them, whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you more than God you judge. For we cannot but speak the things which we have seen and heard. So what you're seeing here is how proper hierarchy works out. God has given authority to men. Uh, we're going to talk about why he does that in a moment. But he has. And we are to be submissive to them. We cannot be strictly libertarian. We cannot simply say, I don't like you. Uh, you're unjust, and I'm not going to honor you. But on the other hand, hierarchy says... There is somebody above you, and when you command me contrary to the higher authority, I have to obey the higher authority. You know, uh, Major, I know that you think that you are indeed the general and you have a, uh, an ego problem, but the general has told me to do something else, and I'm going to get in real trouble if I don't obey the general. So, Major, I'm sorry, I've got to obey the general. That's how a hierarchy works, and the general of general, the, the emperor of emperor, the king of kings, the lord of lords, is God. And just in case we hadn't noticed that, when we get another 
chapter or two away, the apostles get arrested again, and this situation is re-mentioned, and we read, And when they had brought them and set them before the council, and the high priest asked them, saying, Did we not strictly command you not to teach in this name? And look, you have filled Jerusalem with your doctrine and intend to bring this man's blood on us. But Peter and the other apostles answered and said, We ought to obey God rather than men. Right? They are not being unsubmissive. They are not being self-willed. But they are acknowledging there is a king above all kings. And they are ultimately citizens of his kingdom. And they will be obedient to the higher authority. You do know that our text says government has a job description. If you look at uh, verse 13 and 14, Peter doesn't say, now you understand the government is given authority to do whatever it wants. Government is designed to rule your life however they want to. That's God's will. Rather, he says, therefore submit yourselves to every ordinance of man for the Lord's sake, whether to the king as supreme or to governors as to those. And here's the job description. Those who are sent by him for the punishment of evildoers and for the praise of those who do good. Now, Peter is very aware that authorities don't always do that. In fact, when, he's, when we finish the chapter, Peter says, you're going to get beat for doing good stuff. And it's commendable if that happens. You're being honorable to your highest king. So he knows that evil people do evil things, and a lot of them have authority. But he says they have a job description, and it's the exact same job description that Paul uses in Romans 13. They are supposed to serve God. They're supposed to be sent by him to restrain evil and promote good. You are free men, says Peter, but you are not given your freedom for sin as a cloak for vice. You're given your freedom to serve God. Well, effectively, he's saying the same thing about authority scattered among men. God has given authority to men, but it is not for man to just do what he wants with it. All authority, that is legitimate authority, is supposed to be used to restrain evil and promote good. There has been a world of destruction that has happened in society and in the church because men with authority, or women with authority, have thought, I have authority so I can do what I want. I mean, right, it's power, right? I'm given power so that you do what I want you to do. I'm the boss. As a Christian, that is not how authority works. As a Christian, you are made the boss to serve God. You are empowered to do what God says. 
See, in both of our, in, 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 in our passage, Peter says, now you're free men. And then he says, you're a, you have a Lord. And he implies we're in slavery to that Lord. And these things are not in contradiction. You are free men in the world, but you are a slave of God. And if you are given authority, no matter what authority you have, you are given authority to do good to do God's will. God does not countenance you saying, I am given authority, therefore you shut up and you do what I say. Doesn't matter what God thinks, I have authority. God gives to men to promote good. And so as we consider this submission that we must give to government, there is some decided qualifications to it. We cannot not submit, but we must submit to the higher authority. Does government tell you to do things that is very irritating, that make no sense, that even deeply inconvenience you, maybe even unjust, but it's not unjust, necessarily for you to do what they say, can you say, I'm a free man, I will not do what you say? Libertarian me would say, yeah, absolutely, that's how it should be. And I would be wrong. The Bible says, no, we are called to submit. But should government say, you will do what I say, you will live contrary to the law of God, you will do evil things, you'll do it because I say so, shall we then say, oh, well, yeah, we'll obey, that's what God wants? The answer is no. It's, it's an amazing uh, wholeness that the Bible paints about secular government. If you look at this passage, or if you look at Romans 13, you are told what secular government should do. It should restrain evil, it should promote good. If you look at Revelation chapter 12 through 14, you see what government will do. In chapter 12 of Revelation, you have a description of the devil trying to destroy Christ and his kingdom. And then in 13 and 14, you have a description of the kingdoms of men and when John sees them in vision, they look just like the devil. And the devil even gives his authority to them to do his will. And so you have what government should do, and you have what government will do. It will. I mean, even in those times when Christianity has kind of subdued Caesar, Caesar has never been Christ's friend. The secular rulers want to be worshipped. They want you to worship them, bow down to them, consider them God. Throughout most of human history, the rulers have even claimed to be God, because that's what they want to be. Caesar never is God's friend, even though he should be. He's given a job description. Until Christ returns, he's not going to fulfill it. Because man can't. Time is getting on, but I was going to walk you through 1 Samuel 8, which I've done before. I assume you know the content there. 
Israel, the visible church, has a king. It's God. They don't want him as God. They say, give us a king like all the other nations have. God says, I'll do that. You know what all the kings of the earth are like. They abuse their subjects. They make everything about them. They don't protect their people. They don't promote good. They don't restrain evil. But if you want a king that's like him, then I'll give it to you. And he gives them Saul, and Saul, absolutely, it's a devastation because he is like all the kings of the earth, not like most of them, not like the majority of them, like all the kings of the earth, because that's who they are. The Bible is not exactly pro-human government, because we are fallen creatures. We are sinful. And if we are given power, our sin is going to use it. But nevertheless, we live in this tandem. God wills that we submit to them with an attitude of submission. This is honorable. This is living a good life among them, and it glorifies God. And ultimately, that's why we do it. But our submission has certain qualifications. The qualification is there is a higher ruler. And when we obey him, now this is, again, not obeying our whims. This is not, I don't like government. When we must obey him, we are not being unsubmissive. We will honor the king no matter what. We'll honor all people. We will love the brethren. And by the way, you'll notice if we love the brethren, the goal is to minister to the brethren, to care for the brethren, there is nowhere in scripture that I'm aware of that we are told you should love the king as a king. I, I will be corrected if anybody can find a reference that way. We are to honor the king, but I don't know anywhere where the Bible says, now your secular king, Caesar, you should love Caesar as Caesar. You know, honor him, and you're to love all people as people, but I don't know anywhere where it says love Caesar as Caesar. You honor Caesar you fear God, you keep things in perspective, it is not easy, it is often difficult, but that is how we must live in this world. We're free, but we must serve God above all things, and that is how we walk in this world.